like, right? And this is all pretty important because the real estate market, though specifically um, Evergrande, is a pretty important part of the Chinese economy, right? I think other commentators have pointed out, you know, housing is like, what, 16, 17% of the GDP. That's a larger slice of the US GDP than in other major countries when they had their housing bubbles burst, right? United States, Japan. I think that these are the you know the two main examples that people look to. It's it's larger than both of them. Furthermore, when you look at the debt that is held by other real estate developers, it's similar, right? You have Country Garden Holdings. Uh, some people have talked about this about two hundred seventy billion dollars in liabilities. Uh, you have uh, this being a competitor that we'll talk a little bit about later because they're you know they're connected to one of the earlier projects of um, Evergrande. Oh, they're in the area. Um, but Evergrande, if it were to fail, right, there's a large question of like what actually would happen if it failed, right? There's a lot of comparisons to the Lehman Brothers uh, because the Lehman Brothers had about $600 billion in debt. And when they collapsed, uh, it set off a cascading effect that you know, sparked the financial crisis. There's been debate about whether that's actually going to happen because they only have half as much as debt because there aren't as many defaults in the country because the housing market is relatively more sound and there are different dynamics and, and market you know um, conditions, right? You know, in China, the markets are such that, you know, housing is satisfied, but people are also using them to develop, uh, using them as an investment vehicle, right? Yeah, and it's like it's like really the only it's like the primary investment vehicle, yeah. right? Like like we like we're you know we're used to uh, you know in the U.S. and Australia in particular, right? Like you got this American dream, this Australian dream uh, of like you know you own your own home, right? And this is how you build wealth um, is through the the equity in your home. And that that's like very much the same thing as what's happening in China. But importantly, like because of uh, like China's controls on the on, you know, capital controls, uh, it's like really the only option available for Chinese citizens to build wealth um, because like the Chinese government dissuades people from like you know, investing in these like wealth management products that Evergrande has been hawking right. uh, and like pers- like dissuades people from investing in other, like, you know, trying to build wealth and equity in other ways, except for speculation. like, you know, yeah, yeah, through these speculative ways, except for like, you know, owning a home, right? Because this is supposed to be a, a very stable investment that, you know, the promise of like so many economies in the world today are essentially built on this promise that real estate is the one property or the one asset class that will always appreciate. That will right. that will always remain stable because it's a material thing, right? It's in the brick and mortar of your home, and the and the and the, the price of the land on which the home sits, and will and that will always go up in price. Um, and I mean, we we won't get into it here, but that's very much the case in Australia, where there's also a real estate bubble, where the average home, the average uh, residential property price in Australia has gone up over a hundred thousand dollars. Um, since last year, uh, in the midst of a COVID uh, depression, right, a COVID-induced uh, economic depression, the real estate bubble in in Australia, in the U.S., and and you know the promise was in China as well, will just continue to go up um, forever and ever and ever. So this is the safest way to build wealth. Um, and when that promise, when that bubble burst, uh, it causes just like. Mm-hmm. Mass chaos uh, at every corner of society. 
Yeah, there's a good text on this. If It's a short one, if y'all are interested, called The Asset Economy by uh, Property Ownership and the New Logic of Inequality by Lisa Atkins, Melinda Cooper, and Martin um, Connings. Connings, yeah, who are at the University of Sydney, all three right. of them. You know, and they are in that text kind of updating and like also getting their work that they've done over the years more in, in conversation with one another to look at what owning assets, what, why is it that assets are constantly appreciating and why we should probably think about asset ownership more than uh, labor income. Um, and in, honestly, in some cases, uh, you know, general capital gains as a, as a distinguisher for class, right? Or distinguisher for, for analysis for class versus like generations, uh, versus the job that you have, versus the maybe the the wealth that you've inherited, right? Your relation to production because it's no longer, mm-hmm. yeah. Capitalism is like a post production phase right now where it's all about asset ownership, and and so you know similarly that's one reason why the Lehman Brothers comparison doesn't exactly map on because it's very different when you, one economy has a large property developer failing because it's failing to give, because the property development industry is such that you need these massive debts to aggressively grow, to provide, a, to provide homes, to provide uh, products or guarantees, to get land tracks, you know, and so on and so forth. You're constantly taking on money and it's fine as long as you grow faster than the, than the interest rates for the loans that you're taking out or the, or the internal rates of return that you're promising investors, right? And that's a very different situation where the home is the investment vehicle than, hey, let's have these like insane loans that are given now, not for homes that are uh, looking for an investment vehicle, but for people who just plainly can't afford it. And then also let's bet against their them and their ability to pay for it or on them, you know, whichever way your your bet and the derivative happen to go. So those are some of the reasons why it was, it didn't exactly translate or won't exactly translate to a Lehman Brothers comparison, but it's still concerning, right? Because it's not really clear exactly what China wants to do in this situation. And that's one because of how much money is at stake here, $300 billion. Like there's, you know, China could guarantee the worst uh, or the most important, you know, loans or the most important bonds. China could guarantee like some of the debts. China could restructure the debts and delay the payments so they don't have to and refinance them so they don't actually have to be paid out this year, next year, and the year after. This is also happening in the general time and the same time as a few crackdowns that are going on by the uh, Communist Party, right? Um, you know, they're trying to crack down on corruption in general, which as you know, as we'll talk about. Evergrande and the industry in general are kind of rife with. Uh, they're trying to crack down on you know inequality, right? And they're also trying to crack down on um, capital accumulation, on uh, hot markets, the, specifically the the housing bubble, but also the burgeoning tech bubble that they have. Uh, bubbles that are in sectors that are really dynamic, that contribute a lot to GDP, that contribute a lot of jobs, uh, tax revenue, uh, economic dynamism, trade, whatever you want to call it. But also, if left to their own devices, are really great conduits for giving people enough capital to have political power, which does not make sense in this in the model that China has for governing, right? And honestly, that we would you know look at if we were interested in you know uh, undermining a private power and a private economic power of uh, businessmen and entrepreneurs. But that's a different discussion, right? The the point of the matter being is that there's a big question mark about how China is going to respond. 
right? And there's also a big question mark about how bad the problem actually is in Evergrande because we don't actually know the full extent of the debts. We also don't know how much, we don't really have a clear view of like how fraudulent, if at all, the books have been, right? A uh, friend of the show, Andrew Left, short seller report, uh, short seller researcher, right? Who was who became kind of infamous for the, his involvement in the GameStop uh, debacle, right? When the uh, right. when retail traders at uh, Wall Street Bets were trying to pump the stock, uh, he runs the firm Citron Research, which in 2012 made some pretty serious allegations about um, what was going on at Evergrande, right? You know, at the time in 2012, Evergrande has about a you know, 8.9 billion uh, dollar market cap. It's trading at about you know 1.6 times the value of what it should be if you're looking at it, right? It's one of the most valuable Chinese companies, specifically of uh, property companies, right? Property developers, right? Um, and it has grown rapidly. It's become the it, you know at that point it's become one of the largest developers of homes and condos. Um, and it's grown not only larger than all of its other peers, but honestly, other than uh, larger than other you know compa- uh, than other firms might overseas in their own respective housing markets, right? And the strategy is that you know typically it buys really large land and then it develops it over time and then it leverages unfinished properties or perception of what they will be when they're finished, of you know, the public facilities that are going to be developed there, and the general uh, commercial real estate wave that was going on at the time since uh, 97, 98, to, to leverage you know, aggressively large loans, even larger loans to get more large tracts of land, right? And also attract investors while promising them like, you know, a slightly larger than average return, right? And then offering discounts to customers so they would so that they would keep the cash flowing constantly, constantly, constantly. Right. Um, and this allowed them to pretty much establish themselves as one of the uh, one of the leaders in this field, right? But then Citron came in and said, look, uh, the company's insolvent. They're not like li- they're liquid. Um, and that if any real ca- credit crunch occurs, they won't be able to pay out uh, creditors. And that if we actually take a closer look at the accounting. Uh, tactics that they use. They're hiding the the insolvency. They're writing down the debts. They're writing down their equity or they're, they're obscuring how much you know, the equity is actually worth. And they've also, over the past few years, been engaged in a pretty aggressive program of bribery at local government officials so that they can get these, these parcels of land cheaper than average value, larger than average uh, size, right? And that this has also allowed them that, you know, to be in better position to pay for the bribes themselves, right? Because you get the bribe, you get the cheaper than usual land, you build it up, you cook the books, you assure investors that you can keep doing this and you get them to front a little bit more money, a slight at you know the same rate maybe, or a slightly higher IRR. And then you use that to pay back the early investors in a in a business model that kind of looks a little bit like a triangle. And these <laughs> suspiciously <laughs> triangular <laughs> geometry 